I don't need help. I'm not in an abusive relationship. This is just how it is for us. It's a lie we tell ourselves, one that many in abusive relationships repeat until they believe it. But there's hope. Welcome to I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship, a podcast about surviving domestic and sexual violence. This show is about hope. You will hear from survivors of abuse, and their stories may sound familiar. They may even inspire hope. Our goal is to connect with others in these toxic relationships to offer that hope, and with supporters of our mission, anyone willing to help get rid of abuse in our culture. We also talk with the experts in the field, from the officers on the front lines of domestic abuse calls to the therapists and advocates helping survivors navigate this complicated road of recovery. If you're in need of help, please visit our website or call our 24-7 hotline, 800-828-2023. And if this is an emergency and you need help immediately, please call 911. Welcome back to I'm Not In an Abusive Relationship. I'm your host, Dan, and I'm joined today by a panel of special guests. Uh, first of all, we do have our, our, our DASIS uh, personality, Krista DeVore, who's our executive director. Krista, welcome back, of course. <laughs> Thank you. It's good to be here. And Krista and I are welcoming uh, a couple of friends from one of our local friend of the court uh, organizations, the, the friend of the court organization itself, uh, our director of friend of the court in Cass County, Carol Beeler, and our deputy of friend of the court in Cass County also, Sarah Matthews. Sarah, Carol, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. And so we're we're talking with friend of the court today for a couple of reasons. Number one, so often we hear the term friend of the court and we hear how the system is flawed and it's this and it's that, and it's this faceless organization. But in all reality, there are people at the heart of this organization of this, this arm of the court, so to speak. And, um, and, and, and we're fortunate at DASIS to be able to partner with Cass County friend of the court. So that was why we welcomed you. So there you go. Um, and then just to talk a little bit too, about what friend of the court does, uh, in helping survivors and protecting families and serving families so that listeners can understand that wherever you are, that friend of the court doesn't have to be this scary, nameless organization, faceless organization. So, so let's start if we could then, um, how does friend of the court work with families differently than maybe what we hear in the bad stories? Um, well, I'll start if that's okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, Carol, go ahead. You know, I've been with the friend of the court office for almost eight years now. And when I came to the friend of the court office, um, I had heard, you know, in the community, basically a lot of people nicknamed not only the friend of the court, but Cass County as Cash County. Um, there was a thought that the friend of the court office was only concerned about money and that our only concern was going after people who didn't pay their child support money. And um, when I came to the friend of the court, it was really important to me for me to talk with my staff and to talk to the community and find out, you know, what is the friend of the court all about? And so we spent a lot of time um, working with the community and with my staff to develop um, a mission statement so that we can make sure that we were actually doing what the community needed and um, what staff felt like we were called to do. And so we developed a short mission statement and that mission statement is serving and empowering families to make children's lives better. And I love that. Um, my staff all agreed to this mission statement. The judges agreed with it. 
Um, and the community thought that was a good mission statement. And I have worked really hard since I came here because primarily I've heard from dads that Friend of the Court has always been an anti-dad organization because, you know, when the child support program was established in the 70s, the sole purpose of the program was to take, it was an income transfer program. It was to take money from one person and give it to the other person to make sure that children were supported. And in the 1970s, that usually looked like taking money from dad to give it to mom because a lot of moms had been stay-at-home moms or did not have, um, you know, had not been out in the workforce. And so it solely was an income transfer program. And if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense because if only dad was working and then mom and dad split up, we'd need a way to get money to the children to be taken care of. So fast forward to 2020, and we know that families look so different than in the 1970s. Um, we've got people who choose to have children, you know, and raise them alone without their partner involved. We have people raising children together. We have people married. We have people not married. We have, you know, same-sex marriage. We have all kinds of situations. So um, it really involves, for me, talking about, you know, what the friend of the court is about. It involves us looking at ourselves, the friend of the court, but I always challenge the community. It, it takes the community to challenge themselves to think about what this program is because our society has completely changed since this program was set up. And it's no longer possible for us to do what we are created to do, which is to be an income transfer program because in a lot of circumstances, neither party has a lot of money and there's not a lot of money to shift back and forth between people because a lot of people are living paycheck to paycheck. So I know that's a kind of a long-winded answer, but um, I feel that it's up to us not only to do what we're here to do, which is to collect child support, but also to be a support to families to help them problem solve raising children together, because let's face it, it's really difficult. And that's true even if you're in a family where you have two partners involved raising the children. So I think it starts trying to change both the way we do things and then asking the community to think about, you know, times are different now. So um, we need to reimagine what our agencies can do for us. Yeah, I, that's, that's a great, it's not long-winded. That was a great explanation, Carol. And will you, will you go back real quick to the mission statement and say sure, that again? Our mission is serving and empowering families to make children's lives better. So good. Yeah. Uh, and so one of the things that that friend of the court does then in all of this is partner with an organization like DASIS. Um, Krista, if you would real quick, what does that partnership look like on DASIS's end? And then maybe Sarah, we can get into to how that looks on, on FOC's end. Um, I think part of the partnership for us, um, because we have many survivors that um, work with friend of the court. So for us, it's kind of knowing um, what's available, what resources there are, um, knowing like how to work with the system. Um, because if we can then assist a survivor and say, here's kind of the things in the programs, um, here's the resources that we, if you need this uh, form, here it is, you know, all those different types of things. Um, and I think part of it is, um, in any kind of partnership, you have to have communication between people, between organizations, um, and having that open communication, obviously with confidentiality, um, but just with, with the organization, um, 
and I think Fred of the Court especially has been so amazing in working with us and we've had a really great partnership. So I think things like that, the more that we can support each other, because it's not one way and it's not the other way. It has to be together, working together. So the more that we can continue to do that and the more we can work together um, and support each of the organizations, I think is a really strong, important part of the partnership. Yeah, that's good. And, and Sarah, what does partnering with a organization like DASIS mean to you at Friend of the Court? Well, it allows us to do exactly what our mission statement says, to serve families, to provide information to them for services. So something that a lot of people probably don't know, DASIS and the Friend of the Court both sit on the Human Service Coordinating Council in Cass County that meets once a month. Um, this is a time when area agencies get together and we talk about what's going on in those agencies. So we learn when DASIS has a new counselor, if they have new services for children, they'll learn if we have new programs like our Parenting Academy or our SMILE program going on at Friend of the Court. So we have that open door of communication that's absolutely once a month. Um, we also sit together on the uh, Cass County Youth Council and talk about things impacting children there. So we're exchanging information constantly um, in different meetings so that we know. And then that's really beneficial to take back to the friend of the court. We make sure our staff knows. So if they're on the phone with a client that's talking about, I need counseling services, or I need this, or I need a shelter, we know what DASIS has available. We can provide the phone number for them. If we're in a referee hearing and we have to think about, do we order counseling services for a child, for a parent? What do we order? What's available in the community? It's really helpful to know what's available from DASIS as well as other service providers so we can get that to the families that need it. It's also important for DASIS to know what friend of the court is doing. So when their clients are talking to them about, I got this six page case questionnaire, do I really have to fill it out? Why do they need this? Do they give it to the other party so that they can tell them, you know, no, this is what's going on. Here's their website. Here's why they ask for it. It really helps. And so that communication helps us connect our clients with services with DASIS if needed, helps us explain them if someone tells us they're going through it. And then it helps DASIS know what we have so that they can tell their clients, yes, that truly is something the friend of the court does. And here's why. Yeah. So much paperwork when it comes to government <laughs> help, right? Yeah. I've, I've been through it. I know. It's all right. Um, so Carol, you mentioned uh, there used to be, there's a historic focus on dads. Um, what can dads do to help change that perception of, you know, deadbeat dads and dads are the enemy and like how, what can we do in the community? Cause you know, one of my passions is as much as we talk about uh, survivors, the assailants are so often men just because of the way power structure works and we need to change that. And so giving that voice to people who can stand up and say, okay, enough is enough. Um, so I kind of feel like the same thing with front of the court. What can dads do to help change that? Well, I really um, think that we need more men speaking up and speaking out um, you know, it's kind of that double-edged sword of, um, I hear a lot of complaints from men um, about how they've been treated by friend of the court, but then when they're presented with resources and the ability to actually meaningfully engage, then they'll say things to me like, oh, well, she didn't give me the children's schedule and the school didn't tell me when parent-teacher conferences were and this wasn't done. And I say to them, 
well, you know, if, you, if you're the dad, you should be contacting the school. You should make sure that you're getting this information yourself. And I'm not criticizing them, them in any way. We all have relationships with people. And when we're together with someone, naturally different people organize things, make appointments, take care of certain things. But when you are going to co-parent split up, you know, you both have to do all that work. And so I think it's really important. Um, I challenge men when I talk to them and say, well, did you call the school? Did you do this? You know, did you try to get the information yourself? Um, and the same is true of women. I, I don't want to make it sound like sometimes women are non-custodial parents as well. Um, but I think historically women have been the caregivers. They've been the ones that make appointments to get kids to the doctor, to get them enrolled in school. And I'm not saying certainly in all circumstances that's changing. But we really need men to show up and to not lose heart and not to rely on the past and say, well, my voice hasn't been heard in the past, so I'm not going to participate now. Um, mm -hmm. And then you flip that around and you see where um, domestic violence survivors are coming from. There's that imbalance of power and control. And um, we want to make sure our systems are accessible for everyone. And so I always tell people when I talk to them on the phone or in person, you know, my goal is, is that we treat everyone the same, that we provide the same opportunities, that we provide the same access, and we want to be a helper. We want to help people and empower them. That's why our mission statement talks about empowerment. You know, decisions about children are best left with families, not government. And so we need to change dynamics within a family to allow the parents to be empowered to make their own decisions. Doesn't mean all the decisions are going to be the same. Families are unique and different. And I believe strongly, I don't know, um, I haven't talked recently with DASIS about what they feel about this, but sometimes I feel like too, we shortchange domestic violence survivors because we wanna offer them empowerment as well. And sometimes we try to protect them so much that we, dis we extinguish their voice in that process. So I always say to people, sometimes people will say, well, how can you let people do mediation that are a domestic violence victim? Well, do you think court's any safer? I mean, coming to court can be scary for anyone. And so if we can set up safeguards in a mediation process where people can stay in separate rooms, where they can be virtual as we do now via Zoom, why shouldn't that avenue be open to a domestic violence survivor um, so that they can, you know, have a voice? Because, you know, we have to raise our children whether we're a domestic violence survivor or not. And sometimes that means, you know, working with the other party who we might've had historically a uh, negative relationship with. So I think it's really important for us all to be mindful of these things. And I like to talk about empowerment because I say, you know, we do want to protect survivors to make sure they're not being taken advantage of, but by the same token, if they're able to make their own decisions and do it in a way that they're comfortable with, we shouldn't take that away from them either because no two situations are the same. And let's face it, we all learn, we grow, and we do better. And sometimes a domestic violence situation can be that systemic, um, repeated historical domestic violence that we think of. But sometimes it can be an isolated incident between two people because they were using substances, immature, combo of both. And I'm not minimizing it in any way, but an isolated one-time incident between two people is different than that kind of, you know, methodical domestic violence where it's happening day in, day out for years and years and years. 
And so I don't think we can just yeah. treat all of those situations the same because we're really then negatively labeling the person who perpetuated the violence. And we're also negatively labeling, labeling the survivor because maybe that person doesn't see themselves as a survivor of domestic violence any longer. Maybe they just see themselves as a person now. And I think that we're really into labeling in our society. And, um, you know, I think it's important for us and agencies to understand that as well. If someone wants to give themselves a label, I think that's fine. But I think we've got to be really careful if we're the ones doing the labeling. Man, that's big. Carol, that's huge. I love how you said that. We can give ourselves our own labels, but if you're going to label me, it's a whole different. Just see me as a human until I tell you differently. Yeah, that's really good. Um, so the other thing too, I was thinking is you know, we're talking about power and control. Part of that is information and knowledge, right? The, the person that has the power exercising control in a, in a, um, a, a perverted way is oftentimes has more information and power. And I've heard that, you know, uh, uh, assailants will, you know, abusers will use that against uh, their victim and say, well, you know, you don't need to go to there. I'll just take care of this. I'll just have this power and control. And Sarah, I understand that there's a way to opt out of front of the court services, but it's not necessarily always a good idea. And you had a perspective on that that I wanted to hear if I could. Yeah. So one of the things that the Cass County Friend of the Court has done recently as a way to serve our clients is we've actually updated our website uh, and it's, it's user-friendly on the phone because we realize a lot of people access the internet in Cass County on the phone. If you go to the internet, there's a form on there to opt out of FOC services. And a lot of people might not realize that that is not something that is mandatory. Um, you can fill out the form, but if you have someone who's in a domestic violence relationship and they're being pressured to fill out and submit the form, it, it's not automatic. The form actually gets reviewed by the director, so Carol would review it. If there's a history of domestic violence and an unequal bargaining situation that would put someone at a disadvantage to not have the friend of the court collecting child support and enforcing their orders, that request to opt out is denied. And so that person would still have the friend of the court to enforce, which for some domestic violence survivors, that's a great thing because you're not having to deal with that power and control of, I'll get you the child support on Friday when I get a paycheck. I didn't get it, I'll get it to you next time. And having to constantly go back and seek money from that individual to meet the needs of the children or to have their parenting time order enforced and things like that. They can have that safety net of the friend of the court say, nope, you have to have our services and we're here to enforce those orders. I said, and so that gets reviewed by the director to determine if the case can be opted out or not, their circumstances when it can't. So that's something I think all victims and survivors of domestic abuse need to be aware of that there's that process to check to make sure if you need the friend of the court services, we're not going to let you opt out. We'll be there to be the enforcement arm so you don't have to put yourself back into that cycle, that power and control. It kind of feels like when I tell my, my daughters, if you are in a situation where you need me to be the air quotes bad guy, I will. Like, those survivors can look at front of the court as that ally to say, sorry, I can't opt out. Front of the court says I can't. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. All <laughs> right. 
Yeah, I love that. Um, so when you're talking about empowerment, by the way, I I love that you you have that in, in the in the mission statement. And Sarah, as we're doing this on video, I see that in the in the, the logo, which is awesome. Uh, serving and empowering families to make children's lives better. Uh, that empowerment it really is huge in Dasis. We we are a survivor led organization when it comes to things like therapy and finding help and stuff. And so um, that's huge. So we don't always think about that in the court systems as empowering others. So I'd like to kind of dive a little deeper into that. Um, you know, Krista, do you have kind of a thought on that on the DASA side of things? Um, yeah, I wanted to, um, I'll say differently, Carol, um, I loved what you were talking about with that empowerment and the way that, you know, I'll kind of reframe what you said was um, being able to work with survivors to allow choice um, especially within a system that sometimes there isn't as much freedom or, you know, sometimes you, there's things that they need to do. Um, and, and for me, um, I love that idea because sometimes, um, you know, our thinking about different systems is that it's really rigid, but to have that idea of friend of the court that is, is all about empowerment and in families and children, um, and, and walking that light of these, there, there are some things that you need to do and have responsibility. Um, and I think that that is something, you know, DASIS, as we work with survivors also, is one of the things that we really try to do as well is to empower them, but not do everything for them at the same time and allowing them to have choice um, and making and kind of having their own decision making process um, and to just come alongside and be supportive. Um, so I think that's something that's really important to bring up because it's such a foundation for a friend of the court. Um, and I think that we don't always focus on that part of it. And so I just want to, you know, thank you guys for that empowerment piece, because I think it, like I said, I think it's just really important to kind of highlight that. And my, and my question to, to piggyback on that would be, how do you, you know, Krista mentioned that we think of it as such a rigid system and there are systems, there are rules, there are, there's, you know, I'm not a lawyer. There's precedent. I sound important now. Um, we can look at the past, right? But, but yet you you work so hard at that. How do you walk that line between the rules and the and the rigidity perceived or real and giving that empowerment? Well, I think you know, being a lawyer, when I was in private practice, um, even when I would meet with families about family matters. I would always say to them, you know, there's things that the law can do and that systems can do for you and we can get you a piece of paper. It's called a court order, but life is bigger than that, right? So it's really important. And I think attorneys do a disservice when they don't take the time to talk to their clients about the fact that they know their family and their situation and their history better than anyone else. And a person, just because they have a black robe on, They've got limited time, limited information, and so they can't possibly make the best decision for a family. And that's not speaking about a particular judge or, you know, anything. It's just common sense to think about the fact that I know the most about my family. You know the most about your family. So I think it's really important for us all to support and empower um you know, people involved in systems to understand that that's why it's really important if they can, that they make their own decisions and that they talk to one another and that they try to work these things out. And, you know, I'll commonly hear, well, we don't talk or we don't work together. Well, we don't do that. 
And I always challenge that and say, well, that may be the way that you've, you know, handled this situation up till now. But what I want you to think about is just because we haul somebody into court and a judge tells somebody something, that's not necessarily going to change the situation either. So let's get creative. And I love the idea, um, and this is what I mean when I talk about empowerment, I love the idea of people being given permission to be creative with their situations. Think about how creative we are with our own families. We juggle, you know, making sure kids get here and there and everywhere and with our schedules and we use friends and family and everybody to support us. Um, courts don't have the time to be that creative. And so we've got the court system, it's our backdrop and we always offer that as an option to people. But I like to empower people to think about like, for example, when they call our office to complain about parenting time, I take a lot of those calls and I say, hey, let's get the other parent on the phone and see if we can just chat about this. And they're like, we can do that. And I'm like, sure, why not? <laughs> and they'll say, oh, well, they don't know that I'm calling you. And I'll say, well, is it okay with you if we call them? And, you know, it's amazing just how getting people together and starting a conversation um, especially when we're able to do it in person, because we can't do that right now because of COVID, um, you can just see kind of a sigh of relief. Some people, from the time that they split up, if they lawyered up, they've never been in a room alone with this person having what I would call just a you know normal conversation because they've been pasturing or they've been upset or they've been angry, whatever the situation might be. And sometimes it's just amazing to see kind of the sigh of relief almost when they're actually able to talk to one another and sometimes just having someone from my office from the front of the court to be there as kind of the neutral it really helps them and um, I just really want to keep you know I've, I'm a trained mediator and an attorney and I think that the legal system has something to offer but I think people are able to solve their own problems and we need to continue to hold them up and support them and empower them to do that because, um, you know, we all have complicated family histories and um, those family histories go on and on and on way beyond what a court action does. And I know for my own life, you know, I'm 53 years old and, you know, I came from a family where there was domestic violence and substance abuse and, um, physical abuse and a lot of things went on in our house and that the it's a tide that continues to go and go and go you know I'm one of five siblings and you know two of us have very different lives than what we did growing up the other three you know it's it's a mixture and so I think we sometimes think systems can come in and save the day or something, but you know, our lives go on and on and on and on. And if we don't empower people and give them tools and resources to be able to change the trajectory of their lives, we're really doing them a disservice because we're kind of saying, well, only the system can help you. And so that creates resentment, right? Because none of us, you think back to childhood, we don't like to be told what to do. And especially not once we're an adult, but then these systems, because that's what's easier, right? To tell somebody what to do. It's way harder, you know, to teach somebody skills or provide them with tools so they can learn something themselves. But, um, you know, I, I saw this quote on Facebook. It said, the only thing we do by spoon feeding people is we teach them the shape of the spoon. 
um, we're not actually giving them anything to take with them forward into the future. So um, I really think that that's part of our obligation when we work with families is to think about we're planting seeds and I hope to see those seeds grow. And it's not like I think that, you know, I can change the world just in and of myself, but working together with organizations like BASIS, working with you in this podcast, um, I hope that we can, you know, see the humanity in one another and see that there are those of us who are willing to work with each other to try to make the future different. Um, and, you know, that's what I like to see is opportunities. Yeah. And on the vein of humanity, Carol, thank you for sharing that about your family. I'm sorry that that's how, how life was for you. What an incredible um, opportunity to share that though. And to show people like there are, again, this is not a faceless, nameless organization. There are humans behind the scenes who have stories too, who maybe are going through the very similar to what you went through. <clears throat> um, people who care, who want to make children's lives better. So thank you for sharing that, Carol. Uh, so, so on that idea of, of humanity, um, I get the feeling that there's a lot of heavy stuff that goes on at work for, for both of you. Um, I want to give you the opportunity to be human and answer this fun question. What do you do for fun to kind of recharge, to refill, to be able to walk away from that heaviness and go, okay, this is my human side of things. This is my, my personal life. Sarah, I'll start with you. What do you, what do you do for fun? <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> when I have time, let's see. Um, I actually play the flute. And so I go to different churches, usually and play during the worship service. I really enjoy doing that. Um, another thing that I do in free time is I actually write plays. So I did one of the plays for the Dogwood um, Fine Arts Festival for their tea, the Dogwood Tea. Um, I've done one for a local church. I've done one for a scholarship foundation fundraiser. I just, I have fun doing that, um, writing stories and putting it on the stage. So that's something I do for fun. Awesome. A fellow storyteller. That's cool. Uh, and, and again, listeners realize that there are people in your local friend of the court that very similar to Sarah, maybe they're also authors. Um, Carol, how about yourself? How do you, how do you recharge and recenter and what do you do for fun? I love to cook. Um, and so that's very fun. And I, I was telling my son, I've got a 17 year old son at home and I'm teaching him how to cook now. And, um, I said, you know, the thing about cooking is you need time and you need to be able to pay attention. I think too many times, like at least for myself, I'm always trying to multitask, which means I'm doing nothing well. Um, and cooking requires you to be paying attention. Otherwise things end up burnt or, you know, bad things happen. So, mm -hmm. um, but I really enjoy that process. I think it's been fun. My son and I, we spend a lot of time. I've been just teaching him the basics of cooking and uh, I love being with family. I love to play cards. Um, I've been playing cards since I was like four years old. Um, we like to play rummy in my family. And uh, so it's fun to play games. I love family games. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's just for me, at least I spend so much time at work with technology, especially now with Zoom. I love to be able to just sit down at the table and get out a board game or get a deck of cards out and be able to talk with my son who's still at home or my husband and, you know, just uh, share our lives with one another and, uh, and I guess disconnect from, you know, the phone and the Facebook mm -hmm. and all of that stuff. So. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we, we love a, very similar. I love, I love games. I'm a big fan of Euchre and I, it's hard to find Euchre partners. So anyway, um, for those of you not around Michigan, look it up. Uh, 
So ladies, thank you so much for being a part of this. Thank you for the work you do uh, for families. Uh, Krista or either of you, is there anything that I didn't ask that you want to make sure that listeners uh, walk away from this podcast, knowing about Cass County in particular, but also just friend of the court in general. Any last thoughts? I just wanted to make a plug for our website, which Sarah mentioned. It's cascourtsmi.org. Um, it's a great resource. And the other great resource that we have in our state, it's like one of the best in the nation is our self-help legal help center. It's Michigan Legal Help. And you can just Google Michigan Legal Help and you'll find it. And they have great resources for people who choose to go through the legal system without an attorney just to you know, provide education and information. So I just wanted to make a plug for those two things. Thank yeah. you so much for having us today. Absolutely. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. So there you go, folks. Uh, friend of the court. Again, it's not a, a bureaucratic, faceless, nameless entity juggernaut. It is people behind the scenes um, working to help you. So check out uh, the Cass County Friend of the Court for some some resources if you need that. And if you're outside of the area, uh, go in to Friend of the Court communications realizing that they're humans uh thank you for listening to i'm not in an abusive relationship we will see you next time thank you for listening to i'm not in an abusive relationship if these stories resonate with you and you need help please visit our website dasasmi.org that's dasasmi.org or call our hotline at 800-828-2023 we are here to walk alongside you. Now, if you know someone who might benefit from our show, please share it. Social media, email, simply telling someone about it, all help us spread the word and help us to combat domestic and sexual violence. We also welcome financial and volunteer support. That information is on our website. Thank you to the staff, volunteers, and board of directors at Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services. This podcast is produced with the help of a committee of dedicated advocates. Thank you to WBET Radio in Sturgis, Michigan for the use of their studio. This has been a podcast about surviving domestic and sexual violence and a production of Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services of Michigan.